Welcome to Hope Through Hard Stuff, a podcast from Winning at Home. Please welcome your host, speaker, and award-winning author, Steve Norman. Hi, this is Steve Norman from Winning at Home, and welcome back to Hope Through Hard Stuff. My guest again for our fourth installment with my dear friend, Sarah Young. Hello. Hello, hello, who is a sex therapy specialist. Mm -hmm. She is a wife to Lance. She is a mother to three amazing children. And Sarah, thank you so much for sharing your journey and your insight with us these last couple weeks. Yeah, absolutely. It's been a pleasure. So the goal for today is to field some questions that we have been getting and that you have been getting over the years. So this is our Q&A session. Without further ado, why don't you jump in to Mm -hmm. one of the frequently asked questions that you get about sex and intimacy. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, Steve, one of the, there are really three huge things that get in the way of sex and sexual connection that people tend to ask me about. Um, So I'd like to just jump right in touching on some of those. And the first one happens to be sexual desire itself. And a lot of couples find themselves at a mismatch for what what levels that desire is, there's usually one partner that has um, a higher desire than another. And this can cause a lot of friction, a lot of conflict, a lot of difficulty in conversation around frequency. And just want to come around that and normalize that. That's somebody listening, that they're not alone. And uh, just some clarity on desire itself. Not to be stereotypical, but normally in men, we see more of an initiating desire. You know, I, I see chocolate, I want chocolate. And for women, oftentimes, it's more of a receptive desire of, hey, I wasn't craving chocolate, but now that I have chocolate in front of me, it's maybe a good idea. So um, that can kick in for men and for women a little bit differently. So understanding that that's a hardwiring issue and is really normal, um, sometimes that can be um, a good thing for people to hear. When it comes to negotiating and navigating, well, what does that mean about how we show up in our intimate life? The key, first of all, is to be able to have a safe conversation about it and have the assumption that, hey, we're both showing up and we're showing up differently. And these are conversations that are better had around the kitchen table with a cup of coffee rather than in the bedroom right before, during, or after an intimate um, interaction. Spouses being able to have a conversation, hey, here's what goes on for me around desire and um, here's, what I'm, here's what I'm wanting. And to have an openness to hear one another without judgment can be really huge. There are a lot of things that contribute to desire beyond just the internal feelings. Let's look at all the external things that can get in the way and make that tricky too. There's, oh my goodness, so there's medical issues. There are sometimes medication side effects. Sometimes there's just fatigue. Sometimes there's busyness. The reality of a stage of life and where we are with our family and the demands that are there, work schedules, stress, all of those types of things can have an impact on on desire. And in, in one season, desire might come really easily. In another season, man, I just, I, I haven't tapped into that place in me for a while. Um, so for couples, again, to hear how normal that is, both internally to feel a mismatch in the marriage and also externally with all the factors affecting it, yeah, it can be complex. Couples really having a chance to evaluate, okay, what's what's going on for me just as a man or as a woman and then what's contributing to that? If there's a way that that can be out in the open and couples can strategize, okay, in this particular stage of life that we're in with these particular circumstances, how can we contribute to desire being present in a way that's maybe not possible or not simple now. So for example, if fatigue is an issue, maybe we structure a date night so that whichever one of us is wrestling with fatigue 
can get a 20-minute power nap before we go into supper and uh, a a date night and a connection. Um, If busyness is an issue, um, maybe we're just as intentional about scheduling in um, sexual connection as we are about scheduling dentist appointments, scheduling, um, you know, hair appointments, whatever it may be. That sounds really unromantic. However, (laughs) sporadicism can be a little bit overrated when it comes to the pace of life sometimes. So just to, the discipline of making it happen can, can be a really good thing. Or if kids are in the way, oftentimes in the way, I don't mean that is <laughs> right. But the truth is sometimes the product of our sexual intimacy becomes one of the greatest barriers. It's true. So when kids are at different stages, you know, maybe we trade date nights or babysitting with another couple in our stage of life, just needing to get creative to really, to really contribute to desire being a possibility. That's one of the first places that couples struggle, and it's a place that I hear about the most. And again, there are a lot of complex factors to that. Um, so it, it's it's good to just uh, get that out in the open. That hey, this is this is this is life. We're wired differently. Different things are happening for each of us. So yeah. So you talk about where and when to have that conversation. Right. And you talk. You like the cup of coffee at the kitchen table. Yes. For couples who have never had that conversation, Mm -hmm. and they may have been married for two weeks or two months or 15 years. Or 50 years. How do they get there? Because some couples will will hear that invitation from you and just immediately just lock up. Right. And say, I don't know how to – we've never had that. Mm -hmm. There's been shame or hesitancy or vulnerability around that conversation if that idea terrifies me, mm-hmm. what are some baby steps that I can take to get there? Oh, that's such a great question. Yeah. Well, um, you know, always uh, being able to connect with a, a third party, a counselor okay. or another safe person in life, somebody that that's trusted by both spouses. Oftentimes, otherwise, I will suggest that a couple get a book on intimacy and kind of read it out loud together, okay. which can feel really awkward at first, okay. but it can just get us comfortable with the language. That can be a, a good thing. Maybe this is something that I write down and just kind of hang out with me around it first, because maybe I haven't known how to just think about this stuff on my own, let alone as someone else's spouse. Um, yeah. So giving some space to just slow down and consider it differently and move toward it instead of trying to hide from it or outrun it or, yeah, it, it can be a good thing. I like that encouragement to just spend some time as an individual reflecting. Right. Just mm-hmm. just in other therapy and counseling environments, we tell people if you're going to have a critical conversation of any kind, whether it's a confrontation or whether mm. it's a confession or a reconciliation, you don't just kind of blurt stuff out. Right. You think through what do I need to say mm-hmm. and what do I need to create space to hear or receive in order right. for this to be an honorable exchange. Yes, and especially that part you mentioned, what do I need to create space to hear? And and can I do that in a way where my spouse and I are a team and not adversaries? Because this okay. isn't me against you trying to figure out who's right about the bedroom. That's not going to get us anywhere. No. But can we show up and just hear what it's about for the other, take some risk and courage and sharing what it's about for me so that we can gain more intimacy and connection in and out of the bedroom. That's great. Yeah. So what are some of the other questions that you're getting? Well, I want to jump back, Steve, a minute to that that question on frequency, because often with desire differences, one spouse is desiring sex more than than another spouse. And uh, to be able to come to a middle ground with that, so it sounds a little bit simplistic, but a way to start with that is 
one of my supervisors taught me this, does this with her clients, say that one spouse is wanting to have sexual connection two times a week and one is wanting to have it six times a week, pick a number in the middle and go for four. (laughs) It's a place to start. I don't love the concept of compromise. Somebody's always losing a little bit of something, but can we find a space to start from that hopefully eliminates some of the anxiety, the expectation and the pressure so that we can have other conversations? And I'm wanting it more and we're not doing that. What is going on for me in the midst of that? I'm wanting it less and I'm really struggling to show up there. What is that about? Um, So we're wanting to have conversations that are beyond just a sexual interaction because there's always more going on. And that conversation sounds like, in a healthy manner, will look more like a dance than it will like a hostage negotiation. Heavenly days, yes. Yep. If If we're in more of a hostage negotiation, that's probably my hint that I should take a minute and get my feet under me and be curious about what's going on for me before I demand that my spouse understand it my way. I heard an author say recently that if we can find ourselves getting increasingly agitated in the middle of a conversation, Mm -hmm. it could be an indication that we're having the wrong conversation. I think so. I would agree with that. So part of that goes back to how do I hit pause? How Mm -hmm. do I peel back some of the layers in my own mind and soul and thinking to be able to say, what is this really about? Mm -hmm. And you've told me before that sometimes when we think we're having a dialogue or a lively exchange about intimacy, Mm -hmm. oftentimes we'll find out that we're actually talking about something else. Mm -hmm. It's true. Sex is often symptomatic of other things going on in in my heart and soul or other things going on in the marriage. So it's a great, it's a good place to pay attention. It really, really is. And not to feel like you have to be curious there alone. We've talked about that, how God, our creator of sex, the, you know, the one who gave the gift, he's so right there and willing to journey with us individually and as a couple to be scooching toward more connection and health. Another question often I hear, Steve, is, okay, what are the best ways to heal from unhealthy views or perspectives of sex? And we've talked about this in a couple of the other podcasts that we've had where, man, there are so many things that can contribute to how I'm showing up in the bedroom, the family that I grew up in, the scripts that I'm getting from culture, the things that I see in the media. They can all really impact how I'm coming in the room and whether or not I'm able to show up naked and unashamed because there are so many things to to bring on shame for me. So uh, to heal from those, uh, just to reiterate how we named that it's important to slow down and pursue truth about who I am as a man, who I am as a woman, what it means truly that I am, um, I am God's kid. That's an identity stamp on my life that overrides a lot of those lies that I might have interpreted, you know, growing up or when there's been sexual violation or sexual struggle. So that's where it starts. It starts with at the at the core of me as a human before it starts with how do I show up behaviorally in the bedroom? Um, and the greatest sex organ I have is between my ears, not between my legs. So um, really working on those thoughts and those beliefs about sex. And maybe I haven't known where to get an accurate narrative about sex. Again, there are so many great Christian resources. I've mentioned my favorite celebration of sex by Doug Rosenau that really give a trajectory in an accurate celebration and truth about what sex is and what it's not and God's heart on it. I would start by pursuing just truth about sex, truth about myself, and um, having a safe person to do that with, like a counselor or a mentor, just to have something bigger than me speaking into that. That can be really healthy. Um, And then when I have a different sense of self um, and a different narrative about sex, 
I can risk showing up in the bedroom differently. I can risk trying on confidence. I can risk giving more of myself because maybe it's coming from a different place than it has been in the past. Okay. Yeah. So Steve, another area that couples report just some complexity and some some misunderstanding is around orgasmic issues. And again, not to be stereotypical, but normally for men, that's a really linear process. There's the arousal and the movement through, the build to orgasm and release. It's pretty predictable. The thing is for women, it's a lot more complicated. And, you know, some couples come into sexual connection believing that, okay, Everybody has to have an orgasm all the time. Both of us, like, that's supposed to be a thing. And it's not a sexually fulfilling experience if there's not an orgasmic release. Oftentimes for men, it, most times for men, actually, it, it, that will be the ending point. For women, though, um, I don't know. I think that stats are around 30% of women have an orgasmic release every time, um, 30% of women some of the time, and the rest of the percentages um, that goes uh, kind of split between women that don't experience release, and women that have multiple releases. So there's a whole gamut. I think what's important within all of this is for couples to know that, hey, the the orgasmic piece is something that we can talk about, but it's not the big O. We've mentioned that before. The big O is not the orgasm. It's the oneness. It's that full surrender of everything that I am, body, soul, mind, heart, not just this little buzz that my body provides at the end. It's a, it's a nice plus. It's a nice plus. But when it becomes the focus of the sexual connection, it's, it's too small. So along with that, sometimes women that have bumped into orgasmic struggle, they're really interested in uh, movement toward a climax being a possibility. And there are a number of resources that can kind of help guide intentionality with that. Um, And some of it really does come down to space, time, being able to slow down and focus in and just kind of relax into the experience. And um, orgasmic release is not success or failure. And I think oftentimes in the church, it's just one of those realms of sexuality that we just don't talk about, kind of shy away from. Um, But pleasure is a real thing, and it's a great thing, and it's a gift from God. So um, to be able to fully show up in the sensual pleasure of touch and closeness and all those senses, the things that I smell, the things that I feel, um, and having the, the orgasmic experience be a piece of that, that is an okay, appropriate, celebrated piece for, for people to be curious about and to be able to talk about in a way that's that's good. It doesn't have to feel awkward. Again, we're, we're naming that for some couples, this might be a conversation that's never been had. And again, this is a coffee, <laughs> this is a coffee conversation, maybe not a when we're naked conversation. Perfect. So what else do you hear from couples? What other questions do you do you field in the course of your work? Yeah. So for men, oftentimes there just isn't a safe place to talk about erectile function. And uh, it, it's it's really normal that as we, you know, progress through life for some for some minutes in their 30s, for some minutes in their 50s, for some minutes in their 70s, where erections don't sustain in the same way. Um, and if men aren't given language to know how to talk about that, if they're not given ways to think about that, it can feel um, really isolating. It can have an effect on their self-perception, their sense of masculinity. Um, so again, just to, just to normalize that, hey, this is a part of um, moving through life. And you know, God beautifully designed our bodies for women as they age and they get postmenopausal. Um, the vaginal walls thin, lubrication is different. So it makes sense that as our bodies move through life and age together, that erections would be softer and not as rock hard and the bodies would continue to complement each other. So for men, being able to come around that without shame, there it is again, 
There it is mm-hmm. again. Without the shame and be able to strategically talk with their spouse, strategically talk with their physician or their urologist if there's a different problem at play. If there's erectile struggle in the midst of a sexual interaction, then we just move to a different different sensual or close connecting touch. It doesn't mean that it's a sexual failure. It just means, oh, okay, we move to this for a little while. If we decide to move back toward intercourse, we can. If not, okay. But being able to roll with some of those rhythms and not panic because that anxiety that comes will just so often hijack the sexual experience. Anxiety, fear, shame, those are the three biggest enemies of sexual closeness in the bedroom. Another thing that people are often bumping into, as long as we're talking about bodies journeying through life, for women oftentimes it's the perimenopausal and menopausal realities that they bump into when, uh, you know, oftentimes hormones are all over the place and unpredictable and sexual desire can just take a dive and then, uh, you know, postmenopausal realities of, okay, I don't recognize what's going on with my body and, you know, some of the things I mentioned a moment ago with vaginal walls are thinner or maybe there's a new pain in sexual connection that wasn't present. Um, Man, all really normal things, but again, things that we don't necessarily talk about. Um, So same sort of encouragement, being able to talk to um, a menopause specialist or talk to um, your your primary care provider about options and what could help and um, being able to just be curious about your body as opposed to suddenly critical or shutting it down or making significant decisions of, well, I guess this season of life is over. Um, it's just adjusting to a new normal and it can be frustrating and it can require some some grieving, but there's so much to celebrate in that next chapter. And I got to tell you, Steve, um, the research shows that couples that are in their 50s, 60s, 70s are the ones having the most meaningful and connecting intimate relationships. So that's encouraging to hear. And what's the data behind that? Why why is is it just because they've had more time to build trust in the relationship, more yes. time to come fully present? Yes. Okay. More yep. time to understand each other's wants and needs, understand their own bodies. Yes. Okay. Absolutely. But all of those things. There is a Um, There's a deep knowing and being known in so many realms of life and a lot of the performance pressure, a lot of the anxiety, a lot of the busyness, it it shifts and couples are truly able to be more present with one another in, in ways that maybe other chapters of life didn't offer. So one last place I want to touch in on, Steve, is some of the reality of of pelvic pain, sexual pain for women in particular. Um, You know, there can be pelvic struggles throughout the lifetime, whether that's a bladder control issue or a prostate issue, or if that's, you know, something post-childbirth with, you know, all of the internal organs and how those are connected and all the pieces. But when it comes specifically to pelvic pain, um, there are a lot of couples that that really, really struggle with that in isolation. And and I just want to name that piece, too, that, that if that's you, that you're not alone. Pelvic pain can take a lot of different forms. It can take the form of external pain through things like vulvodynia, which is kind of a a really severe burning sensation, to um, vaginismus, uh, which is uh, when muscles involuntarily spasm or tighten and can make intercourse very painful and very uncomfortable. To know what to do with that, where to take that, um, it it can be kind of kind of vulnerable. Um, and so just wanted to invite if there's anybody wrestling with that, that um, gynecologists can be a great 
a great place, a, a safe place, a, a really normal place to have those conversations. And they have you know, medications that can help. They'll also oftentimes recommend pelvic floor therapy, which is like a physical therapy for men or for women in the pelvic region that just help the, the muscles um, respond and relax in ways that can be really helpful in reducing pain. Um, so that, that's one that isn't said out loud very often, but it is much more common than we think. Thank you. Sarah, closing thoughts. Any last words of encouragement or insight or wisdom for couples who are maybe ready to have some conversations as a result of listening to this that they weren't ready to have before? Yeah, yeah. First of all, I got to go back to what you named. Like, there is preparation that will benefit this conversation significantly. If I'm slowing down with me first, really getting clarity on what's going on for me, and coming into that conversation willing to share some of those things, willing to hear what's going on for my spouse. Um, if there are touchy topics that have a lot, of, um, a lot of charge around them, if you will, if those have been areas of conflict for us in the past, it can be great to have somebody else present for those conversations. Again, a counselor, a safe person that both of us trust um, just to help us get some momentum. Um, and more than anything, coming into those conversations with a team mindset of, man, we want something we want something healthier or more connecting or safer for us. You know, I'm going to need to shift my definition of winning. Um, if winning has been, I just want to get my way, um, that might keep us pretty adversarial, might keep us enemies. But if I think about it as I, I want something that feels like a win for us, um, yeah, I'm going to have a lot more space to take in what's going on for my spouse so that the bedroom can be a safer, more connecting, more fun place for us both. I think that's just a great gift to so many people who are listening. And I'll just add something that is probably pretty self-evident. I think that for many of us, we've been conned into thinking that winning is mirroring some cultural script mm. or some some mythical reality that's out there. And it's really important for us to be able to say, hey, just because that exists somewhere out there mm -hmm. doesn't necessarily mean that that's, that's true or honest for me right. or what is healthy or God-honoring or Jesus-focused for us. Right. And it's really important that we figure out what, what that is. Yes, and if we can come around it with curiosity and fascination as opposed to, ugh. Judgment or, and dread. Yes, yeah, yeah. And if that's where I am, if, if, any, if me or anybody else is in a spot of judgment or dread, man, like really, really give me space to figure out what's going on there and let myself move and heal to a place where I do have a little more openness. Great. Thank you so much for your time today, Sarah. It's been a blast having you Thanks, these Steve. last couple episodes. You've been listening to Hope Through Hard Stuff, a podcast of Winning at Home. If you'd like to hear more about who we are and what we offer, you can go to winningathome.com. Thanks so much for listening. We'll catch you next time. Thanks for listening to Hope Through the Hard Stuff. If you liked what you heard, please remember to subscribe to it, rate and review it, and then share it with others. Winning at Home offers hope through counseling and coaching, motivational speaking, community events, and other media resources. If you believe in what we do and want to support us in our mission, consider making a donation at winningathome.com.